Hello. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Diagnosing a Killer. I'm Goel. And I'm Kenna. Really excited to be in here with you. I know. It's a, I don't know, I, I don't know why, I feel like it's been a while since we recorded, but it hasn't. Well, it's, I think it's because we recorded on Monday, posted on Monday, and now we're recording Thursday, posting on Thursday. Yeah. And I think it just, usually when we sit down and we do a case, we also do ads, and like, you know, we'll usually sit in here for hours at a time. That's true. Yeah, so. Although the last episode was about an hour. Yeah, it was. That was a good one. I liked it. Mine. That was uh, fun. Got a lot of information out of that yeah. one. Yeah. I feel sure. like. I meant to make a correction, but I I don't remember what it was. But listening back, I was like, I don't think I said that right. Or I didn't... I think I wanted, like, to convey something else, you know? I thought it sounded fine. I think it was around the chirality part. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The the mirroring made oh. so much sense, right? Yeah, it made a lot of sense. Right? Isn't that interesting? It's like, you know, you mirror someone what, you know, well, I'm just doing what you said, you know? Yep. <laughs> I was going to bring it up to you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. So we have some exciting news. You want to share the exciting news? I'm sure if you guys have us on social media, you've already heard this, but cool. Yes. So we've been busy bees, and that's part of the reason why our episodes haven't really been coming out like strictly at midnight. They're usually later in the day. Instead of doing some research, I yesterday I I purchased my first domain. Woohoo! So we are the owners of diagnosingakiller.com. Oh, so, so exciting. We are getting ready to launch a website for y'all, which will include merch and all kinds of cool things like that. <gasps> but besides that, we have been approved to have a booth at the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival. Really excited. That's going to be in Austin in August. I'm so excited. I can't contain it. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have a coupon code. You should be able to get 15% off of a ticket to come see us in Austin. I believe it's August 25th through the 27th. Yes, it is. And you'll be able to purchase a ticket with our coupon code once the website launches. So. Yes. Yeah, super freaking excited about that. Our little logo is on the website for them. So if you click on it, you can see our little logo. And then if you click on our logo, it takes you to like our page. Really excited. Not our website, but our RSS feed for now. Oh, um, okay. I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't know it was clickable? Oh. Yeah. So we're really excited to meet just a bunch of really cool creators. And this is the fourth annual that they've done. So they have a little bit of a leg up on us. There's a bunch of podcasts that have been, this is going to be their fourth year in a row going. Yeah. And it's, I think we're one of like four or five podcasts that's going to be our first time. So we are really thankful for this opportunity. Super excited. And not to mention that my best friend lives in Austin. So I get to see her <laughs> or up there. Uh, so that's going to be really cool. You guys should definitely come check us out. Uh, we would love to meet you guys. And I know it's a, a three-day event, so we're going to do potentially a panel. And then we will have a meet and greet, of course, maybe some merch, things like that. But we also don't know what to expect. because I'll never bring the there. Sharpie. We're famous now. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, I should get like a gold Sharpie or something. Ooh, a gold. Also, in the meantime, we are creating merch, like we said. So any ideas of anything that you guys would want, maybe on like a t-shirt or a mug or a dog water bowl mat or whatever you think any quotes that you guys like that we say or anything that maybe just spark our our creativity because yeah. there's a couple things that we've thought of but 
I know you guys are the listeners, so you guys have probably listened to multiple episodes in a row, which means that you have a better memory of all of our episodes than we do because we've recorded a bunch. So Mm -hmm. it would definitely help us out if you guys have any suggestions or anything you'd like for us to, anything you'd like to see on a, a item of merch. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us what your catchphrases are. So, you know, something that you say often that you find yourself saying and you're like, wow, that's from Diagnosing a Killer. That would be cool on a t-shirt. That would be cool. Yep, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, so just let us know. We'd love the feedback and continue to message us on Instagram and email us and stuff. We've been getting a lot more activity with that lately. So thank you guys for reaching out and we love to hear from you. I don't know how to segue into this, but it's your case and I'm really excited. Content warning. This episode depicts scenes of mass suicide and self-harm. Although these topics are described in a sensitive manner, the subject matter may still be disturbing. Awareness warning. We will also be discussing some topics that pertain to religion and the struggles of an LGBTQ plus community member. These topics discussed within this episode may be sensitive to some. If this episode isn't for you, we encourage you to find another one of our episodes. Remember that your mental health comes first, and we love you. You can reach the National Suicide Lifeline at 988 and the Trevor Project at 1-866-488-7386. You are not alone. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. So we're going to talk about Marshall Herf Applewhite Jr. Oh, God. That's a fucking name. (laughs) (laughs) Right? He was born in Spur, Texas on May 17th, 1931. Spur, Texas still to this day only has an IGA, a Dollar General, and a feed store. Really? Yeah. It's it's still very, very small. It's by Waco. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if it's by Waco. I'm asking. Oh, oh no. I think it's more like, not necessarily panhandle south of Panhandle. Very tiny. Like, it has, like, one road through it. I've never been there before, but it seems like a very small town. And I just looked it up. There's, like, the population of, like, 1,100. Yeah. Today. Very (laughs) tiny. (laughs) So, Marshall Jr., clearly the son of Marshall Applewhite Sr., and Louise Applewhite. He was born the third child out of four total kiddos. We had Anna Louise, Stella Jane, Marshall Herf, and the youngest was John Winfield. Those are cute names. Aren't they? They're so country. Anna Louise. Anna Louise. Anna Louise, Stella Louise Jane. get over here and you do your chores. John Winfield. That's a last name. <laughs> that is a last <laughs> name. The children's father was a Presbyterian minister, and the household was very religious growing up. Marshall Sr. moved the family around a lot since part of his mission or his goal was to travel, build up congregations and churches, and then move on. Okay. So the family was very nomadic. Marshall Jr. loved to be in church, and he really connected to the sermons that his father would preach. Soon enough, Marshall, too, would wish to become a leader in the church and had aspirations of becoming a minister. Other than some of the instability as far as the moving went, Marshall grew up with what he seemed to have like a relatively normal upbringing. Mm -hmm. Marshall Jr. insisted on going by his middle name, Herf. Yeah, let's just call him Harf. Harf. What up, Harf? Which sounds silly to me. It sounds really silly. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of just Marshall. But I guess it's Big Marshall, Little Marshall, Herf. Could have gone by Marsh. Could have gone by Marsh. <laughs> Could have gone by Shal. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout his life, Herf's sexual orientation was questioned by others and was especially looked closely at by his father. He graduated from Corpus Christi High. Did he though? He did. Well, the family lived in the Corpus Christi area. It was said about the family from a fellow churchgoer that Mr. Applewhite Sr. was always smiling and that he was a really warm person. Louise was a very hard worker, and she often ran the choir and the music side of the sermons. Okay. She was really active in music. 
Herf was determined to attend Austin College in Sherman, Texas after graduating. And Austin College, it sounds silly because we know Austin is a city, but Austin College is a Presbyterian school. Okay. And here, Herf found a passion for philosophy. Hmm. While in attendance at Austin College, Herf was very active in religious groups and organizations and found that he was also musically inclined, similar to his mother. What year was this again? It would have been in the 1950s, somewhere in there, because eventually he would graduate college with a bachelor's in philosophy. So, yeah, 1952. Honestly, like, I never understood philosophy and... Like, thank you, Professor, I don't remember your name, for passing me, because (laughs) I swear to God, I got an F when I was in my intro to philosophy class at Texas State, but he gave me a C. Like, literally, I had an F until, like, the very end of the fucking course, and then all of a sudden I had a C. It was like, shout out, because I would have had to, like, take it again. I'm pretty sure that was actually my second time taking it, because I failed it the first time. I love philosophy. terrible at philosophy. I love philosophy. I think it's... Well, I'm not a religious person, so I think that philosophy really appeals to me. Just I just don't understand it. There's too many names. There's too many dates of, like, when these people were alive. I know, like, Aristotle and Plato, one of them was the the student of the other. And I know Freud. (laughs) That's pretty much, like... Freud is psychology, though. But he... See? Fucking obviously, I don't even know. I have a psychology (laughs) degree. I don't even know. I know Freud and Tesla and all those guys. I thought he was also in uh, philosophy, no? I mean, he might have, yeah, probably, maybe, but he was a psychologist. He wasn't really like a, philosophy is like the study of like why we're on this planet. I know. Yeah. I I could have sworn that he did both. I don't know. It doesn't fucking matter. He (laughs) thinks women are hysterical and he's dead. So (laughs) continue on. Are we not? Um, oh, I'm not. I know some <laughs> that are, though. <laughs> I'm not. I'm perfect. <laughs> Far from it, folks. So, during college, essentially the year that he would graduate in 1952, he would in actually... What? The year that he would graduate in 1952? It, I don't know why. It sounded in my headphones that you said 1952. 1952. Probably. Okay. 1952. <laughs> so, we always talk about people getting married too quickly, right? Oh. So, the year that he graduated in 1952... <laughs> No. <laughs> I was gonna I was almost gonna let it slide the first time. I was like, wait, I could have sworn she didn't say that. Well now you've heard it twice. Okay. Nineteen fifty-two. He married a woman named Annie Pierce. Okay. Got it? Okay. Got it. <laughs> During this time he also, of course, I said that he had already kind of found this passion for music. He was actually known to sing operas and was known for his baritone voice. So that's hard. Yeah. But he was a really, really good singer. He also excelled at public speaking and leadership roles often. You know, he was in a lot of extracurricular activities that required him to be a leader. Yes. Okay. Wanting to kind of stay on his path, uh, original path of becoming a minister, Herf and Annie would relocate to Union Presbyterian Seminary to study theology, and this was in Richmond, uh, Virginia. Okay. Theology is also something I never understood. I didn't have to take a theology class, but yeah. I think I wouldn't have it's just it. Religion. Herf and Annie would live here for a few years while Herf continued to study, and then the couple would move to North Carolina where Herf found work as a Presbyterian minister, and he was in head of, like, heading the music department, essentially, of okay. this local church. Seems like he's doing, like, well. He seems fine, right? right? He seems like a normal dude. Totally fine. A little... Interested in religion and philosophy and theology, but, yeah, you know, whatever. And leadership and, you know, <laughs> it's not going to go anywhere. Oh, okay. It's not going to go anywhere. Diagnosing a 
diagnosing a happy priest minister. (laughs) Herf would be drafted in 1954, where he served in the Army Signal Corps, which I thought was really interesting. So communications. That's interesting to me that he was drafted around that time, because there wasn't, besides the Vietnam War happening a year later, there wasn't a giant thing going on since World War II. (laughs) Doesn't know philosophy, but knows what the Vietnam War was. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was right after 1954. Yeah. You know who I'm dating and going to marry? True, So, yes, he was stationed in Austria, and then I think he spent some time in White Sands, New Mexico. But either way, in 1956, he was discharged honorably. Eventually, the pull of his love for music and performance was entirely too much. Herf would move to Colorado in an effort to to pursue a degree in theater arts. That's interesting. I know. Isn't that strange? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, not... He's good at opera and stuff, so clearly he has, like, a knack for that. He's got a knack for that. going from being a priest to, like, I want to be on Broadway. (laughs) After working in the army? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of weird. (laughs) Kind of a jumping around dude. After graduating with a master's degree at the University of Colorado in theater arts, Herf made the decision to relocate to New York to pursue a career in acting. Okay. So he wanted to act. In New York, Herf would soon realize that his dream of becoming a famous Broadway performer was unlikely as the couple was struggling financially. <laughs> that's very showbiz. Quickly. That's <laughs> showbiz, baby. <laughs> showbiz, baby. <sighs> so I tried very hard to find more information about the two children that they had during this time. Okay. I was mostly looking for dates of when they were born because I didn't really see any. But after like 30 or 40 minutes of snooping around, I was able to find information on the kids. Their names have changed. And purely out of respect for the fact that they do not want to be associated with their biological father, I'm not going to talk about them. Okay. But they did have two children. Around this time. Around this time, okay. yeah. Or in the, you know, years that they were married. Okay. So, yes, Herf would give up on these dreams of being in New York, right? Having my name in lights. <laughs> <laughs> and he moved to Alabama, of all places. He's just all over the fucking world map. <laughs> Could have gone to L.A. Could have yeah. tried there. Or Nashville. I mean, shit. <laughs> yeah, for music. Yeah. He began to teach at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. Tuscaloosa Heart. That's all I heard. Tuscaloosa. Here he became a choir director, and he seemed to really like this position. However, this would be short-lived as rumors began to spread that Herf had began a sexual relationship with a student, a male oh, student. Oh, no. Wait, hold on. I don't want to sound like I'm like, oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no, he's gay. <laughs> I meant, oh, no. Infidelity. <laughs> Not, oh no, it's uh, a man. Oh no, it's a man. <laughs> this was enough for the university to cut ties with Herf completely. Yeah. Learning about this affair, Herf and Annie's relationship began to spiral. The family then moved to Houston, Texas, and Herf started working at the music department at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. Interesting that he would be allowed to work at another university well, i feel like that would be public record it was just rumors though it's not like he was oh, like yeah, yeah. He, it was rumored that he had the sexual relationship but and just he just left okay i, I seemingly to start over and new right mm-hmm. so the marriage began to fall apart even still after the move herf decided that it was time for him to come out not only to his wife but to his family wow. of course this was met with rejection his dad's very religious yeah Annie filed for divorce, and his father denounced him. Oh, God, it's awful. Really sad. Nonetheless, Herf was optimistic about his opportunity to live his life authentically and began his first same-sex relationship, 
um, during this time while he was, you know, going through the divorce or divorced. He did date some women as well, so I don't know if he was struggling with orientation as far as... I mean, that's his business, you know? Yeah. That's just... That makes me so sad that he... Like, it's it's been this long. He's, what, probably in his 30s now, and he's Mm -hmm. just now finally, you know, living the life that he wanted to live. His students loved him very much. They considered him to be a sharp dresser and a fun person. He was a good teacher. Herf was still involved in church, and he often participated in various choirs of different churches. He also participated in at least 15 roles at the Houston Grand Opera. Wow. Yes. And he actually performed many times with Patsy Swayze, which is Patrick Swayze's mother. Hmm. So he was a really good actor, singer, performer. Mm -hmm. As much as he felt like his life was peaking, Herf was still slowly becoming depressed. And in 1970, Herf would resign his position after another failed relationship with a student and the passing of his father. Oh, no. So he never got closure with his father whatsoever. Oh, God. He cited psychological problems and admitted himself into a hospital for evaluation, but he did tell some family members that he... There was varying stories. He said that he went to go visit a friend at a hospital. People around him at the time knew that he was going through the psychological thing. He had actually been evaluated by the college's psychology department, by Mm -hmm. somebody that he worked with, and suggested that maybe he go. He told other people that he was in the hospital because of a cut or something. Hmm. Either way, he went into the hospital, and he also had, around this time, had expressed that he had begun hearing voices and thought that a stay in the hospital might cure him of his queerness as well. Oh, my God. Yes. He thought he was mad. Here he would meet the woman that would not only change his life forever, but the lives of many others. Bonnie Lou Nettles was born to a Baptist household and grew up religious. After she married, she and her ex-husband had four children together. And by the time that Bonnie became a registered nurse, she had begun dabbling in astrology and practicing rituals. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she was like Wiccan or what, but it kind of sounded like that a little bit. Yeah. But she doesn't love a Wiccan. Oh, <laughs> I, I don't really know much about their religion. I just know that they paint their doors like certain colors. Do they? Their front doors? Oh, oh I yeah. Know. I don't know that. They're like they put they paint them like yellow or like bright like purple or I fuchsia. I didn't know that. That's just That's what I've been told. I don't know how true I'm that a, is. I'm gonna do that. At one point, she visited a fortune teller that told Bonnie, "One day you'll meet a tall, light-haired, and fair-complected man that would change her life forever." That is the vaguest description of anybody I've ever heard. <laughs> that could be I can name three. <laughs> so you mean a guy? Yeah. An so average a, dude? It's a Mayan. <laughs> so by the time that Herf was admitted into the hospital that Bonnie worked at, mm-hmm. Bonnie had her eye out specifically for a tall, fair-haired, fair-skinned man. She's like, oh my god, there he is! <laughs> Shit! <laughs> this is, has to be the one. I didn't wear clean underwear today. Oh my god. So, yes, Herf matched this description, and the two became incredibly close very quickly. They discussed religion and philosophy and the occult. After Bonnie gave Herf his first tarot card reading, the two believed that they were both destined for big things, and soon the two would become roommates after Herf was discharged from the hospital. Okay. (laughs) And they were roommates. And they were roommates. 
Herf believed that he and Bonnie were connected somehow from the past life, and they had an intense spiritual connection. God, I see where this is going. Right? Ugh. They talked about UFOs and extraterrestrials and began to believe that they would be able to communicate with aliens. Henry Thomas. Oh, Hi, Henry. Hi, Henry. <laughs> have we never shouted out Henry before? We haven't. Henry, if you're listening, we love you. And Thanks, Henry. And we haven't seen you in a long time. <laughs> yeah. So although they seemed to be a couple, Herf and Bonnie's relationship was completely platonic, denouncing sex completely from their lives. Hmm. Pouring over the Bible, the pair started calling themselves the twos in reference to Revelations 11, 3 through 13. Okay. You ready for this? Yes. Quote, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothes in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in a public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to the heaven in the cloud, where their enemies looked on. At the very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The end. So, essentially, that's what they're referencing when they call themselves the two. Like, they are the two. I mean, I know there's four horsemen in Apocalypse, but these are the two that are essentially die and then are resurrected. No, yeah, it's like Colin Hanks and Dexter. Yeah. He's like, we're the two prophets! And he's like, <laughs> exactly. we cannot die! And he's like, you fucking stabbed me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I am dead. <laughs> you stabbed me. Dexter in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, shout out Colin Hanks if you're listening. I love you. Um, that's, that's one of those things that really bugs me is when people use religion as a weapon or as like a means to act out evil. Yeah. Like, well, it says it right here. It's yeah, right well, here. it's all of interpretation. In 1973, the two packed their belongings, said goodbye to their families, including Bonnie's young children, and began touring the U.S. in search of a place of a land to create a congregation. So they're not going to go to Egypt, like it says. No, they got to find it somewhere else. Oh, so then it doesn't make sense. They're not even going to the place. Well, it said <laughs> in the land, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. Ah. Uh. Is, what, is what that said. Loophole. Loopholes. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a loophole. So whenever I say the two, just realize that I'm saying it like capitalization for the most yeah. part. So the two quickly ran out of funds, traveling from park to park, camp to camp, stealing what they could when they could, 
And they also sold their blood for money. Thou shalt not steal. Did you not read that part of the no. fucking Bible? No, that's Bible. Pret- <laughs> the Bible. The Bible. Oh, I, I love the Bible. <laughs> the knockoff Bible. <laughs> so, so they're just using this one scripture, and they're gonna interpret it to do whatever the fuck they want. Sure. Essentially, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I, I mean, there, there, there's some probably some things going on in there well, up, in, I, up in the old bird cage. He's yeah. clearly <laughs> mentally ill. I'm not sure about her, but right. he's clearly. He's clearly hearing things. They would gain their first follower in 1974, which was a family friend from Houston, and she began to travel with them as well. Herf began to write propaganda depicting himself as Jesus Christ reincarnated as a cowboy. What the fuck? (laughs) In reference to himself because he was from Texas. I'd like to see that painting. Howdy, (laughs) y'all. Oh my gosh. Like you've seen those like those paintings of Jesus where he's like like slam dunking a basketball or he's like he's like <laughs> yeah, playing on one of those or something. It's like one of those. He's a cowboy. But he's a cowboy. It's hilarious. How dare you? <laughs> they outlined their religion saying that after the afterlife would be called the next level. And in the next level, they would be transported to space like through spaceships and fly off into the sun or something i don't remember <laughs> i'm and, sorry i'm not meaning to i laugh. know i it, know they truly probably believed this and that's oh, yeah sad. absolutely that's yeah. really sad because clearly they're at least him if not both of them are experiencing a delusion of some sort sure in may herf was arrested for not returning a rental car because it was quote divinely gifted to him oh was it <laughs> he spent six months in jail for this and after his release, all of this time that he kind of had by himself, he really wanted to, like, hit the pavement as far as recruiting people. As many people as possible. He's like, that six months in jail was divinely given to me because it gave me time to think about yes, my plan. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So the two hit the pavement. They started recruiting people. They approached people with pamphlets and offered anyone who would want to join a chance to reach, quote, the next level. Phrasing it almost like it was an experiment. It was like, well, you have nothing to lose because if it doesn't happen, like, whatever, you know? But, like, also, spaceship ride for free. (laughs) Nothing to lose but your fucking sanity (laughs) and your life. Well, so the two approached this, like, kind of like they were sci-fi nerds. And this is also a really big thing in the 1970s. Things like Star Trek, Star Wars, Dark Star. I totally forgot how much I love the movie Dark Star. If Moviecation guys are listening, please do an episode on Dark Star. That movie is so cool can't say i've seen it <laughs> it's it's awesome but and it's just a coming. bunch of dudes with big beards <laughs> <laughs> it's like duck dynasty meets star wars or what? <laughs> yeah kind of they all have these really big beards <laughs> so everything about space was super intriguing at this point of our culture society and also just counterculture in general yeah so i can see how people would be kind of gravitating towards that yeah they probably know, thought it was like it's new like a little club yeah. you know where we just sit around and a little club. A little club. We just eat our flying saucer deviled eggs. And we <laughs> don't drink the punch. And just don't drink the flavor aid. In 1975, the two had about 30 followers, and they traveled to California to continue to grow. At this time, the two began calling each other Bo and Peep in reference to the fact that they considered them their followers a flock of sheep, and they were the shepherds. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So as they coached the flock in preparation for the next level, 
Bo would preach that renouncing all earthly desires was a necessary step in order to be accepted on the ship. So what do you do? Just sit there and starve to death? Like, uh, and renounce everything on earth, all the desires? Yeah. What if I have to pee? That's a desire <laughs> that I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I can't do that. No drugs, no alcohol, no jewelry, no media, no facial hair, no sexuality, no friends, no family. I'm out. You lost me at facial hair. You lost me at school until You lost me at alcohol. That's only the second one. Just kidding. (laughs) Oh, okay. So did people leave after this? Bo insisted that all must also have biblical names, but ending with Adi. So, like, Leviticus would be Levati. No. Or James would be Jamadi. I'm not even kidding. Why? Why? I don't know. He insisted. Bo insisted that they all change their names to something that was uniform, I Audie? guess. Yeah. That's really oddy. That this weird? That. <laughs> it's a little oddy. I'm so funny. Around this time, the group also began calling themselves Heaven's Gate. So I'm sure everybody knows a little bit or at least has heard something about Heaven's Gate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In late 1975, although the group was traveling from place to place, campsites and such, Bo would say that there would be no more public meetings. They couldn't have public meetings out in an open space. So around this time, the group would rent houses, spending some time in Denver and some time in Dallas. So they were renting these, like, big home properties, and they began to grow and grow. Bo was convinced that he and Peep would be assassinated at some point. So it gave kind of another reason to not be out in the world and begin to, like, isolate these people, right? After some time, the media got wind of this cult-like group traveling about, talking about aliens and UFOs. Mm -hmm. Bo claimed that this was the assassination that he prophesied. What? He was like, oh, slander, slander, you assassinated my character. Because the prophecy wasn't coming true, essentially. Loophole! (laughs) On other occasions, the two gathered their followers in a field, claiming that their higher-ups would appear in the sky to send them a message. And did they? After a few hours of standing around, (laughs) Peep said she had received a message that the visit was a test to test everybody's devotion. Yes. My God. And people were like, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Oh, wait, actually, that does make sense. Oh, thank God I passed that test. Because I was there, standing in the field for hours. (laughs) No peeing. (laughs) No alcohol. You don't need real ink to make an impact. Let the power of temporary tattoos tell your story. Temporary Tattoos specializes in a wide range of temporary body art, including custom tattoos, with the option to add unique effects like metallic, glitter, glow-in-the-dark, and so much more. Temporary tattoos are easy to apply and last up to five days. When you're ready for your new look, simply remove your fake tattoo using their lemon-scented removing wipes, rinse, and repeat. Temporary tattoo, experiment with a new look without the commitment. Use the link in the show notes below for 10% off stock tattoos and bring your new look to life. So the group was essentially becoming isolated from friends and family, and Bo and Peep didn't allow outside communication to anybody. Some followers would leave, but oftentimes return, saying that they had never had, you know, self-worth more than inside the group. Groups like that really do have a way of making you feel 
special and, and needed in that yeah. in that area. Bo had an open-door policy for any issues that the members wanted to express to him, but encouraged the members not to discuss their qualms with other members, not only to keep control of what was being said, you know what I mean? Because yeah. if all the problems come to him, he knows how to fix it yeah. before it reaches anybody else, yep. which is really um, calculated. And really manipulative. It was also in this kind of weird way to not incite an uprising as well. Because yeah. if you're talking to so-and-so, you know, and everybody kind of comes to this agreement exactly. that they're going to overtake him or overthrow him or whatever. Yeah, no, that's definitely seems like something that would go on in that group like that. Yeah. By 1980, there were over 80 members in the group, and after multiple attempts by family members to contact their loved ones, Bo did allow some of them to come visit their families on Mother's Day of 1980. But it had to be on the property with his supervision. Yes. Yeah, of course. And I think it was also so that the family members didn't, like, call the cops for well-being checks and stuff. No, yeah, for sure. But also, like... He probably put on, like, a facade, like, oh, look, it's, like, a cool little community. Like, we're all hanging out here. Everyone's happy. The group were instructed to tell their families that they were pursuing careers in mechanics and that they were safe and secure in their religion. Oh, my gosh. Most of the group were actually encouraged to work on mechanics and computers, since that would be one of the only remaining jobs on the next level. Wow. Yeah. By this point, Bo and Peep started going by Doe and T. Why do they keep changing their fucking names? Which is apparently completely random. But it, there apparently was no meaning behind it. They just changed their names. It just rhymes with their previous just, names. <laughs> Doe, a deer, a female deer. Yeah. Oh. They used to sing that all the time, too. Oh, God. Isn't that terrifying? The sound of horror. <laughs> Which was, yeah, like I said, completely random on the names. They probably claimed that it was, like, passed down. <laughs> like, oh, I don't know. It just came to me. A divine gift from God. Yeah. <laughs> In 1983, T expressed to Doe that she had been sick for some time. T had suffered from cancer and can no longer hide the fact that she was going to go through emergency surgery, which actually removed one of her eyes that was damaged by cancer. Wouldn't that be against the rules, though, to have surgery or to have medical help? Medical intervention? I don't know. Well, they do believe in science. That's true. Yeah. This goes against all things that they preached because Doe and T were supposed to join the group at the same time, on the next level. Oh, yeah. T believed in Doe, and she believed that when he said that it was impossible for her to die, she believed him. Oh, my god! She cursed the doctors when they suggested that she only had a year or so to live. Bonnie Lou Nettles would pass on June 19th, 1985, just two years later. Oh, no. Doe preached to the group that T had left her broken vessel behind and was already promoted to the next level. And that their duty was to stay behind so that they could eventually be reunited with T because T was helping from the other side, like the next level. He just had to think on his feet and say something because he didn't know how to explain away her death. Yes. Further complicating things for Doe, he also had to explain why T didn't hop on a spaceship and go to the next level. Yeah. Because that's what they've been saying. Like, we're going to board this spaceship and we're going to leave together. Doe claimed that Earth bodies are different from space bodies. So T left hers behind and gained a new one that is more acclimated to the ship. And that all of the followers would also receive new bodies. Essentially a resurrection. Oh no, that's like giving way for them to all be willing to die. It's awful. 
Oh, that's fucking terrible. I think the saddest fact about T's passing is that almost nine or ten months later, T's daughter came looking for her mother, had no idea that she had passed away. Oh, my God. And Doe, unfortunately, had to break the news to her, which is awful. Yeah, he couldn't fucking say anything when it did happen. Because this is, like, years later after she abandoned her family. Yeah. It's oh really my sad. God. Doe, of course, became very depressed that, you know, T was his soul partner. T's death triggered something in him, and he began having marriage ceremonies with his followers of any gender and started using he-him pronouns when referring to T because he believed that she was the father of God. Okay. So T was, I'm assuming that they were saying that T's body, although maybe indicative of female anatomy, was a vessel for the father of God. Okay. And so when he referred to T, he referred to her as he. Okay. It's just getting worse. Yeah. It's like, but again, they're eating it up. Like, they, they trust him so much. They're, right. they're just believing him. Doe began to become increasingly paranoid of government involvement and paranoid of the people around him as well. So furthering isolating, like further isolating himself and others. He felt that outsiders were controlled by Lucifer and constantly talked about the apocalypse. So throughout the 1980s, there were multiple alien abduction claims, which Doe felt like this was proof that there is more followers around the globe that are also going to the next level. Okay. Right? Does that make sense? I I mean, no, but yes. (laughs) It further convinced others that they too would also be called up to the next level as well. I just, I, I, I wouldn't be in a situation like this in the first place. However, I would probably be like, so why has it been taking so long for us to get there? If you keep saying this and it's happening to everyone else, what are we doing wrong mm-hmm. that we haven't been able to get there? So the group actually fell off the map for quite a few years. And by 1988, the group's peak was actually at 200 members. So they gained quite a bit of following, right? During this quiet period, Doe found a doctor that was willing to perform a mass castration of the members who chose to participate. What? Yeah. Was he a veterinarian or was he like an actual human doctor? Because <laughs> I feel like that's what veterinarians do, yeah. not actual human doctors. <laughs> Maybe well, HH. <laughs> God, that's fucking bonkers. Like, From was... all accounts, I'm pretty sure only seven to nine people participated, though. That's still, like, almost a dozen people. That's wild. It was suggested by Doe as a form of proving you'd leave your earthly desires behind and a sign of commitment to the group's ideals. But if they were already abstaining from sex, why do they have to be... Maybe some couldn't. Maybe that's those are the people that said that they would, you know, is that they still felt like they had this, and if they couldn't perform anymore or whatever, then maybe they wouldn't feel that way. Doe himself was also castrated. Doe said that the next level beings do not have genders nor genitalia, and that to castrate yourself would make you one step closer to being like them. Just getting acclimated to your next level body, right? Yeah. Well, not yeah, like I understand, but yes. Yeah, I totally get (laughs) that. I hear what you're saying. (laughs) Like previously mentioned, the group wasn't allowed to consume any media of any kind, but now coming into the 90s, the internet was becoming a thing. Yeah. And public access cable TV was also a thing. So Doe would actually preach on public access television, and some of these, some of this footage would later become infamous footage. Mm -hmm. 
Doe would often have the group video record their experiences while preparing for the next level, which included shaving their heads and bodies, dressing the same as they wanted to look more androgynous. After criticism was thrown their way, several members did leave the group, and the numbers actually plummeted all the way down to just 26 members in a few years. Since the castration stuff, because, well, you know. But what, did he not, like, do anything, like, when people left? He just, like, let them leave? Yeah. Or and he it, didn't it, try to, like, backlash? Right, or, like, exactly. Anything? And even when people came back, they were received in, with open arms. They didn't, there was no, it was just, like, you know, oh, look, there's Lavi, Lottie Dottie, or whatever. I just feel was. like, yeah, I just feel like that's kind of different than what I would assume would happen is, like, I would feel like he would be, like, mad that someone would leave and then try to, like, re-recruit them or not allow them to leave mm -hmm. or something like that. Because then they would reveal the secrets of the of the group to other people on the outside or whatever. Yeah, know? I don't think that they really... It wasn't more that they were trying to keep their religion privatized. I think it was more like, A, he was paranoid. He didn't want to be around people. B, their recruiting style was more like one-on-one face-to-face. And I think that the, the preaching part of it was like, once you were accepted on into this piece of land or whatever. I don't think that he was really terrified of anybody going around talking about the religion. I think that he wanted people to do that. he didn't think he was doing anything wrong. Right. Okay. I think there was a part of him that genuinely cared about people in a weird way. Okay. And having people pay attention to him and listen to him, you yeah. know, preach. And I think that's what gave him power, whether it was one person or 25 people or 200 people. Yeah. They also moved around a lot. So I'm sure there's plenty of times where followers just, just did not follow them. In 1995, Doe learned that the Hale-Bopp comet was to pass in 1997, and this was a sign to him that this would become the vessel carrying the next level ship. Oh, great. Doe, becoming older and fearful of being sick of cancer himself, looked to settle down somewhere and purchased a compound in New Mexico, although it was more like a piece of land that they tried to, like, make shacks at and it didn't work out <laughs> they lived there for about a year and during this time doe began preaching how he now realized the only way out of their human forms was to commit suicide oh my gosh he further explained to the group that when Hailbach comet were to pass is when they needed to board the vessel onto the comet to achieve the next level the group would then move one more time to san diego california Doe began his final recordings of the group on March 19, 1997. Doe began to explain all of the intent behind what was to come. He talked about their beliefs and provided what he claimed to be proof that this is the only way for the group to make it onto the next level ship. Okay. On March 20th, Doe allowed his 38 followers that agreed to take their lives to say goodbye to their families through a video recording. Oh my god. Most of the group described their long-awaited journey, saying that they hated Earth and that they could not wait for the next step in their life. Mostly, they never shed a tear. They were genuinely excited to exit Earth, is what they would say. Jeez. On March 21st, the group gathered one last time to enjoy a meal together. They ate turkey pot pie, cheesecake with blueberries, and drank tea. Yum. That's that like sounds, my kind of meal. That sounds good, right? <laughs> On March 22nd, the group began to take their lives. And I won't say it here. If you want to look up the method, you're more than welcome to just go Google it. It's on Wikipedia. But just for respect, I'm just not even going to put this in there. But, it doesn't matter. But essentially, they overdosed. Okay. One by one, as the members began to pass, others who were tasked with caring for the bodies afterwards 
would hide their face in purple coverings, place a coin bag with some money in it, and a form of ID next to each body. The money was five dollars and three quarters, which was said to have referenced Mark Twain's Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven, where he wrote that, quote, to hitch a ride on a comet costs five seventy-five. Oh my gosh. The group was given patches that adorned their uniforms, saying, quote, Heaven's Gate Away Team on it. They most notably wore Nike sneakers. Everybody knows that. I didn't know that. They were all wore Nike sneakers, yeah. And they were a very specific type of Nike sneakers that were like, I don't even know. Apparently they were cheap and comfortable, and that's okay. <laughs> according to Doe. It would be another four days before an anonymous caller asked for a welfare check on the grounds of the group's house. There, on March 26th, the bodies were discovered. 39 members, including Marshall Applewhite, were found dead. Oh my god. 21 women, 18 men, aged between 26 and 72. So I'm going to list a few of these. There's only 31 listed here, and the others either have probably not been identified or have not been released. Judith Rowland, 50. Cheryl Butcher, 32. David Van Senderen, 48. Alan Bowers, 45. Margaret Bull, 54. Alfonso Foster, 44. David Moore, 40. Julie Lamontagne, 45. Darwin Lee Johnson, 42. Robert Arencio, 45. Gary Jordan St. Louis, 43. LaDonna Brigado, 40. Joel Peter McCormick, 28. Gail Mater, 27. Thomas Nichols, 58. John Craig, 62. Margaret Richter, 46. Susan Elizabeth Nora Paup, 53. Michael Barr Sando, 25. Norma Jean Nelson, 59. Susan Cook, 54. Jacqueline Leonard, 72. Susan Strom, 44. Yoram McCurdy Hill, 38. Denise J. Thurman, 44. Lindley Earhart, 41. Jeffrey Howard Lewis, 41. Erica Ernst, 40. Lucy Eva Pesho, 63. And Joyce Scala, 58. Damn. So Nichelle Nichols' uh, brother, who was Thomas Nichols, I had mentioned Thomas Nichols, he passed at 58. Nichelle Nichols is actually an actress from the original Star Trek. Oh, really? So that was her brother that passed, which is pretty interesting given that this is all sci-fi. Well, you know what's interesting to me is that when you think of a cult and people that are able to become brainwashed to the point where they are willingly committing suicide... You th- I would immediately assume that they would be younger people, mm-hmm. like maybe like late teens, early 20s. Mm-hmm. And most of the people that you read were in their 40s and 50s, even older. So that's really surprising to me that people of that age, I know you said one person was 72, are able to become brainwashed like that. Because mm-hmm. again, I would think of that as not fully developed brain behavior. That just, my point in saying that is that shows how convincing how manipulative, how calculated this man was. Right. Apple White was 65, though. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it's just, uh, yeah, it was an older bunch. Wow. I don't know why. I don't know why. Sci-fi stuff? I'm not but, sure. But, I mean, then again, they were following him for many years. So maybe they were much younger when they first met him. And then 
they just formed this bond and, you know. That's true. Um, wow. This was the largest mass suicide involving American citizens since Jonestown in 1978, which claimed 913 people. Holy shit, I didn't realize it was that many. It was a lot. But they didn't do it willingly. No, they did. Jonestown? Yeah. I thought he gave it to them and they didn't know. No, he gave it to them and parents were feeding their oh, babies. you're right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, God. Ap- <laughs> apple shite. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, Ap- I mean... <laughs> apple shite was found not to be... <laughs> apple white was found to not have been riddled with cancer upon his autopsy. He was actually found to have a coronary... Bear with me. He was found to have coronary atherosclerosis. Okay. That sounds nice, right? Which can cause strokes, heart disease, and a myriad of other issues. So he clearly knew that something was going on with his body. Yeah. He thought he had cancer. He didn't. He was found in his bed. He was the third to last to die. Okay. So two other members were the last. Because they were probably tasked with putting stuff next to his head and stuff. Yes. And they were the only two found without purple shrouds over their heads. Various individuals that had ties to the group previously received the farewell videos and at least one media outlet. So that was purposely sent out. The videos were soon published in public knowledge. Oh, my God. Like, that's so awful. Imagine that being one of your family members. People, like, all over the world can see that, like, last moments of their life. And most of these people, from the accounts that I read, didn't tell some of their family members they were leaving. They just went missing one day. Yeah. So to find out that one of those people that I might have listed might have been one of those people... There was one instance where I I think it might have been Scala, Joyce Scala, who was a news reporter and said that they she was going to go to a religious meeting of some kind. And she was never seen again until her passing. And she was very devout. What a helpless feeling, like being a family member of those people, especially ones that didn't know what was going on. Like, and then literally the next thing you hear about them is that they're dead. Like, that's God, that must be such a helpless feeling. Like. If they had just, I can't believe, I can't imagine what people felt. Like, if they had just opened up to me about this, I might have been able to get them out of there or something, you know? Marshall Applewhite was actually on the cover of Times Magazine. That's how big this was. Yeah. After the incident became worldwide news. This incident would claim more lives over the following few months. A 58-year-old man who was reading the news decided to take his own life in fear of missing the comet. Three or more former Heaven's Gate members would also commit suicide within the following months. Right? Jeez. The co-discoverer of the Hale-Bopp comet, Alan Hale, said that he wasn't surprised, honestly, when the story began to break. Comets have been very powerful forces in spirituality since the dawn of time. People have looked up to the stars for answers since we could look up, and many cultures have differing ideas of what it means to see a comet. Because... I mean, let's face it, we all wish on shooting stars sometimes, right? Yeah. The Hale-Bopp Comet was the most viewed comet in history, beating out Halley's from 1986. I bet, because everyone's like, what the fuck is this comet about? Let's go take a look at it. Right? And it's, it's true. And the news broke before the comet, before you could see well, it. Well, really. I'm sure that some people, if shit, a bunch of people, I'm sure, were like, maybe there is a spaceship on the comet. Maybe we should watch it and see if right? it lands anywhere. So the Hale-Bopp comet was actually visible without the use of a telescope for up to 18 months. 
That's how massive this thing was. 18 months? 18 months. How fat? That's what it said. That's what, that's what, no, the, that's, that's what the word, that's what the word it's said. It's probably I don't know. <laughs> traveling fast as fuck, but yeah. like, you can't see it traveling fast as fuck because you're so far away. Well, it was also so big is yeah. the, whole, the whole thing of it, right? That's wild. So yeah. The Heaven's Gate cult ran for 22 years and essentially absolved into obscurity after the suicides. Oh. Not very many people followed. Yeah. Many people believe that Marshall Applewhite is a murderer for brainwashing the group and that they were victims of wanting to feel like they belonged to something great. Marshall Applewhite was never diagnosed with anything necessarily, but the paranoia and mania that he experienced may have come from schizophrenia. I agree. To me, the most obvious issue that hurt Marshall the most was how his sexual orientation was repressed his entire life. And he never really felt like he could be himself. And then when Bonnie came along... She kind of helped support him in his sexuality. However, he identified was accepted, yeah. and they fed off of each other for that. Today, there are about 2,500 to 3,000 cults in the United States today. Really? Not even kidding. Although yeah. some of them can be very small, right? Yeah. And then 70s, it was very common to have com- communes and live off the land and stuff. And then we also talked about the fact that counterculture was also very big. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of grand enough for that to happen, that people would just go off on these little cliques and commit, you know, create their own little communities. Part of the reason that someone might be drawn to Heaven's Gate wasn't just the space exploration thing, but that Marshall and Bonnie adopted a lot of beliefs from other cultures that kind of commingled with science. So a lot of westernized culture stuff, too. It was a kind of a wide net that they casted, and although they kind of fumbled with a lot of the details, I think that most everyone participated had to have had at least one or two things they were attracted to. Yeah, they can relate to something. Right. Another thing is that when they recruited, like we mentioned earlier, they would recruit one-on-one. So it wasn't just out of, you know, Doe and T's mouth. It was out of everybody else's. So it's, you know, like I said, not to, I mean, the greatest comparison you can have is Christianity. It's by word of mouth. You don't necessarily have to go listen to a minister or preacher talk about the Bible in order for somebody to approach you and talk to you about the Bible. Yeah. And so I think that's another reason why it grew and why it was so intriguing to people and, and um, like, it would really grasp people. Yeah, definitely. I think another thing that people really adhered to is the fact that they grew so quickly over such a short amount of time. Yeah, With definitely. just that face-to-face, you know. Well, definitely. Like, people want what other people have. Like, you want to be a part, and people want to be included, they want to be a part of things. Like, that's the scary thing about cults, especially when you're so young. And, I mean, I know most of these people were older, but you don't know how how young they were when they started following him. Mm-hmm. It was 22 years, so those people that were in their 40s or in their 20s when they, you know, might have joined. And right. being at such a young, you know, influential age, I mean... It just reminds me of, like, Charlie Manson. Like, all of those, a lot of his followers were young women and, Mm -hmm. you know, really influential age. And you're listening to someone that is a little bit older than you. So they're already more wise in your eyes. And you're really at an age where you want to do your own thing. You want to think for yourself. And people like that can make you think that you're thinking for yourself. Mm -hmm. Like, these are, this is your ideations. You're making this choice for yourself. And in reality, they're controlling the way that you think and you don't even realize it until you're completely brainwashed. I agree with that. Yeah. Doe definitely had this sense of, um, you're in control. You're totally in control of this whole situation here. Um, I just have a few requests Yeah, and people honor that, you know, because they are enjoying this, you know, in this specific case, they're enjoying this thought of 
man, like when I get to this next level, I'm going to have everything I want. And this is my choice to make. I can leave whenever I want. I can come back whenever I want and I will still be accepted. Exactly. Yep. And that's, that's the thing. Like, I'm not really sure. And I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm not really sure that he was like a cold blooded killer. I think that he was really misguided and really let down as a child. And, and he grew up wanting to control him. He wanted to control his choices in turn. He wanted to let others control their choices, but I think he also wanted in the back of his mind to control others. And he was clearly mentally ill. He was sick. So that's why he was having all these paranoias, delusions, hearing the voices and stuff like that. And unfortunately that led into his group that he decided to make. And he wanted, I, I truly believe that he wanted to kill himself and he was willing to let a lot of other people do it as well. For sure. I don't think that he wanted to kill other people right. for that satisfaction. Yeah. I think he wanted to die and he wanted other people to die with him. I agree. Or as well, if they wanted to. Right. And especially talking about like um, the sexual, like the repression of sexual orientation, him growing up um, n- thinking that, you know, okay, I'm not going to be praised for being you know, gay or whatever, however he identified, I'm not going to be praised for that. But what I will be praised for is preaching. And what I will be praised for is teaching and guiding. And so I think, you know, especially when it comes down to the castration, clearly that's something that he experienced because he couldn't get over however he felt, you know, this, this repression of a sexual orientation. Yeah. And, through that, you know, people are like, oh, well, I'm dealing with those same problems or I'm struggling with that as well. So you have support in me. Yeah. They can and, identify with each other. Yeah. But definitely an interesting thought. Yeah. To... That's a really, a really sad um, story. And it is. Also, it's a lot of tragedy. My bad, y'all. <laughs> no, definitely really different than anything we've ever done. I mean, that's, and that can be perceived multiple ways. You know, some people might hear that and think, He's not a killer, you know, mm-hmm. he, everyone had their free will and their choice. Right. Some people will think that he's a monster. So, mm-hmm. but I think it's definitely fits the theme of our, of our podcast because yeah. he was clearly mentally ill and he did, he did unfortunately cause, I think, cause the deaths of other people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with his manipulation yeah. tactics. And again, that schizophrenia, it hits up right at that age, especially after the loss of his father, you know, he felt like he had a mental breakdown and that's why he went into the... You want to say menti breaky? No, I just I, was, I wanted to go. Oh. Sorry, but he did. I think that he felt like he was having a mental breakdown, and then yeah. here comes Bonnie, willing to give him anything and everything that he needs. Yeah, as definitely. far as cultivating what he wanted to create definitely. for himself. So definitely interesting. Well, thanks for bringing that case. That yeah. was really great. You guys, if you'd like, can follow us on social media anywhere at Diagnosing a Killer. Twitter is at Killer Diagnosis. We do have a Patreon as well that is going to be on our website when that does launch, and we'll keep you guys posted on that. The True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival is in August. You have until then to get your tickets. I would recommend just getting them early because I don't know how... I'm sure they will sell out at some point, so better safe than not to be able to get one. And yeah, thank you guys so much for the support. We'll be back on... Monday with another mental breakdown mm-hmm. and I was actually going to tell you we need to get my case recorded as well because I'm going out of town this weekend and I'm going we're going to be gone oh, all yeah. week so right. we're not going to have time to record shit um, but we'll <laughs> make sure to get that out for you guys as well um, next Thursday and yeah yeah no I'm good okay, all well, right we'll talk to you guys later love, love you, you. bye, bye.
You already know that craft beers have been exploding in popularity over the past decade, but what you might not know is that there are thousands of awesome craft beers being produced by these new microbreweries regularly. With Craft Beer Club, each order will showcase two breweries from different regions in the U.S. and includes four beer styles with a brand new box each shipment. You'll also receive publications that detail the history about the featured breweries, tasting notes, pairing options, and maybe even a little trivia. Click on our link in the show notes below and get free shipping along with up to three free gifts with your first purchase. Order Craft Beer Club today.